Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're going to chart the history of Latin music in the U.S. through a handful of landmark hits with our guest Layla Cobo. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. But first, let's review some new music. That is a little bit of Happier Than Ever, the title track of the second album by Billie Eilish. If you don't know who Billie Eilish is, Greg, I think you've been sleeping under a rock the last couple of years. A young woman born and raised in Los Angeles, homeschooled uh, in a house full of uh, actors and musicians with her brother, Phineas, who has been her collaborator at age eight precocious she was, uh, joined the Los Angeles Children's Choir, uh, but really broke out in a big way in 2016 with 14 million online streams of, uh, of the tune that really captured everybody's imagination, Ocean Eyes. In, uh, in 2017, she had a bunch more hits and an EP, won more Grammys than a bulldozer could could haul away uh, for her debut album, and now comes album number two. This is a song from Happier Than Ever. It is called NDA. We'll give our opinions on the other side of it. Did you think I'd show up in the limousine? No. Had to save my money for security. Got a stock of walking up and on the street. Says he's Satan and he'd like to meet. I bought a secret house when I was 17. Haven't had a party since I got the keys Had a pretty boy over but he couldn't stay On his way out made him sign an NDA That's a track called NDA from the new Billie Eilish record Happier Than Ever One of the most anticipated releases of 2021, no doubt She's only 19 the, that first record, uh, When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go, she framed a lot of her imagery in these kind of fantastic, gothic, you know, supernatural elements. You Nightmares, know. she yes. calls them, yeah. And, uh, you know, there was a spooky side to it. Okay, this is very, all, almost like a, a dream. And here, we're, the, dream's, the dream's over. It's like we're facing reality. We are dealing in much more specific terms about her life. There's two main themes running through this album and they sort of cross over. One, she's, uh, there's a kiss-off element to this ex, uh, you know, Taylor Swiftian territory here. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the other, she's calling people out uh, for the way they treat young women. Yeah. I mean, young women are sexualized and demonized in this society over and over again. Uh, this is th- something that she confronts very directly. What That is not particularly surprising. She's always been dealing with these subjects in a way that is incredibly empowering to young women. Somebody understands me. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting to me about this, this is a very different sounding record. She's gone back 
and she's sort of showing her musical acumen, her knowledge of, you know, uh, genres like bossa nova. Yeah. You better lock your phone and look at me when you're alone. And jazz, uh, lounge singing and classical music, bits of trip hop, uh, you know, musical genres that long preceded her entrance into the world. Uh, I think it's a daring move on her part. I don't think everybody is going to immediately get it. You know, where are the bangers? Where are the big tracks? You know, there's a lot more low-key elements in this uh, record. It's much more subtle. She's playing her cards much closer. I mean, you hear it when that uh, uh, the track we bounced in in on, Happier Than Ever, shifts from that torch song mode to the bigger mode. I, I love it, and I wish there was more tracks on the record like that. The one thing that I, I come away from this record is, you know, if you didn't know she has a really fascinating and amazing voice, you'll know it now. I think she is a first-rate singer. I, I, it first became apparent to me when I saw her doing some stripped-down stuff with her brother, it's just, you know, with just an acoustic guitar and yeah. her voice. You go, she can really sing. And, and that rest, last record was so whispery and dark. And this record is more, she's actually expressing herself, but again, it's very subtle. I wish the record was a little shorter, but there's about eight tracks on this record that are incredible. So I, I can't fully endorse this as like, this is a great record front to back, but you know, everybody's making their own playlist these days. There's, uh, there's so plenty of fodder here to, for your uh, playlist. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, Greg, I think she needs an editor. You know, her, her brother is a great foil. He co-writes with her, he co-produces with her. But I, I'm not sure she's able to tell when she's at her strength. Um, a song like NDA, which we played, you know, a boy comes to visit the secret house she has bought that she does not want to tell the world about because although she is earning big bucks, she doesn't want her privacy invaded. And whatever happens, happens. It's kind of unclear, as a lot of these songs are. And she makes him sign an NDA before he leaves. Right, right. All right this is not a problem, Greg, that uh, any of my 18 year old students have that any of your daughters or mine had when when they were 16 you know i mean i'm gonna ndas and how hard it is to dodge the paparazzi and i don't need to hear any more of that when she's talking about you know the uncertainty in her life about expressing her sexuality about being body shamed i, I wish not my responsibility the key track in which she's talking about you know whatever you're thinking about me how you're judging my body none of that is my responsibility I wish that had the musical power behind it. Instead, it's sort of like a spoken word piece. Every yeah. word she says is laudable. If I wear what is comfortable, I am not a woman. If I shed the layers, I'm a slut. Okay. It's not a song. It's a great moment. It's a key moment, but it's not really a song. It's not really a song. <laughs> she needs more songs. And this mid-tempo kind of sleepiness, um, yeah, I, I, I wish this was a better album because I think she's an admirable artist. I wish she would, two things. I wish it was better musically, and I wish she would stop talking about how hard it is to be a celebrity if I never hear another song, not from her, not from Drake, not from Kanye, but not from anybody, well, about how hard it is to be famous and rich. Her her celebrity scenarios, though, I will say this about that because I had the same issue when I first heard it. I go, oh, another celebrity complaining about being scrutinized by the media. But really what she's talking about is any young woman being scrutinized by another person that you know no. whether, whether it's whether it's the media whether it's the male gaze whether it's the, the the whole idea of you're an object and more that 
always happens, I, I would say, 100% more often with young women of than course. it does with any other beings but, on the planet. But, but listen to the line, things I once enjoyed just keep me employed now. Hey, hey, Billy, there's worse jobs to have <laughs> than being a world-famous pop star, okay? <laughs> things I once enjoyed. Music just keeps me employed now. Oh, life is hard. Welcome to America. Distracted by the features of the iPhone. Got an application. In other words, taken by a pretty face. Somebody's watching you. Welcome to America. That's a track called Welcome to America. Yes, folks, there is a new Prince album. That is a title track from it. Jim, we have been reviewing Prince albums even after his death in 2016. The, the posthumous uh, yes. archival releases, but... This is different. This is a new record. It was never previously released in this form. Welcome to America, a record that he made in 2010 and then chose not to release. There were five albums released between 2006 and 2010, Mm. and this was not one of them. He started making a few calls after that monumental Super Bowl performance in 2007. Uh, and then Pl- the Planet Earth album came out later that summer. He was trying to ride the momentum, and it fell flat. I think he had a sort of a reckoning, a personal reckoning, and he said, I want to go back to a stripped-down trio format. He, uh, he hired a very good bassist named Tal Wilkenfeld and a drummer named Chris Coleman, mm-hmm. and they worked on tracks as a trio in his studio, very raw. In fact, uh, Tal was saying that uh, there was no rehearsals, we went in there and we just started rolling tape. And he said, here's the song, let's record it. Then added a few elements afterward, but it's very much a stripped down Prince album. Very political. Let's play a track from Welcome to America before we review it. It's called Yes from Prince on Sound Opinions. If you're ready for a brand new nation. That is the song Yes by Prince, Welcome to America, an album recorded in 2010, never released, uh, a posthumous release now by the man's estate. You know, Greg, at first, uh, I'm dreading all new Prince music coming my way because so many artists have been done wrong by their survivors with the flood of of music released, especially uh, artists who who were such control freaks as Mm. Prince, right? and at first I was listening to this and and really, really enthused about Welcome to America. I think uh, Same Page, Different Book is an extraordinary song. There's only one Wow. You know, Prince is singing, no matter what religion you are, we have more in common than separates us. And... It's ridiculous for these things to lead to war. Welcome to America and running game, son of a slave master. I don't know if he's ever been more political, more poignant. And the way those songs foreshadow uh, the last year, Mm. you know, it's like, wow. What kind of a crystal ball did he have to see into George Floyd in 2020, uh, a decade before? 
And then, see, I was listening on Shuffle. And mm. for some reason, my streaming service mm. put all the heavy songs up front. And I was like, wow! And then, yes is perfectly okay, but I think we've heard that from Prince a half dozen times. Maybe it's got the groove. He's kind of in retro mode. He's putting this band through its paces. Hot summer. Okay. And somebody said, you know, we'll pay a million dollars to write a fake fake Prince song. Like if Flight of the Concords, mm. I think, wrote that song. Just wait and see. Hot summer. You know, it's like a Prince parody song. I feel the same way about When She Comes and what the hell is he singing about in 1010, Rin Tin Tin. I have no idea. So it's half a good album and half a bad album. In all the articles, he allegedly has left a, a vault of 8,000 recordings. I am certain there are 987 great songs in there, mm. but to, to parse through 8,000 to find the 987, it's like, I, I don't know. Is it going to be worth it? Well, I'm going to tell you a story, a quick story about Prince. <laughs> tell me a story, I went to his, uh, I went to, I visited Paisley Park like four times over my uh, life, which were amazing events every time, and he'd always play me something. Yeah. And sometimes he'd play me a lot. And almost everything that he ever played for me, I never heard it ever come out again. Yeah. It's like he's testing it. He's constantly writing. And I was at, talking to one of his engineers. He goes, it's endless. The guy records 24 hours a day. I can't keep up. I need to get some sleep. The guy just wants to record. So it, it, it is an amazing number of stuff. couple things. Uh, he's always been political. The songs that you like the most are the ones I like the least. The ones the that you songs? hate the most... Are the ones I like the most. You don't. You, know? you don't like same page, different, different book. That's one of the better ones. But I will say, Welcome to America is a missed opportunity. We mentioned the spoken word stuff. Welcome to America is him talking to us, basically. Him you know? talking to okay, us. Okay, that's fine. In the you first know? two years of the Obama administration, saying we are not posting. I, I, you know, all of that I agree with. What I'm pointing out is that he was always been aware, socially, politically, yeah. of what's happening yeah. in the world. I just wish some of these songs were better than they were. Uh, I think the first part of the rec record is initially exciting because, hey, he's talking about these, these issues that are still contemporary. But the point being, though, I don't think those tracks are very exciting. The track that you say are boilerplate prints, I think, first of all, yes, I don't know what you're missing about that track, but Hot that summer, is a you don't, you don't raving think... stomper, sly stone type of track. And he's saying the time, the summer's here, it's time to start a fire. He ain't talking about, you know, we're going to shoot off some fireworks. He's talking about marching in the streets in the, in the same way that he did in We March in 1995. I think hot summer is going to be 110 degrees in the heat that is being turned up on the powers that be. And it's amplified by that song, yes. Those two tracks work together. Rin Tin Tin. The track that you said, I don't know what that means. Yeah, First of all, Rin -tin -tin, yeah. that sounds like avant-garde slide to me. The world is in a weird place right now. It's getting weirder every day. I think that track perfectly what, expresses what is, that. What does the dog have to do with There's it? There's some surrealism going on. A <laughs> lot, of, lot of surrealism. You want him to be literal all the time? I don't. I don't want him to. Personally, I, I, like, I, think I like surreal Hayes, I think Morris Hayes was the last great collaborator of his career. You know, when Hayes said this is a great album, I'm glad it was released. 
I'm not so sure. I think Prince did not have people around him who could say anymore, that's good, that's bad. It's an unsatisfying experience, is what I'm saying. I think there's some great stuff on both the Eilish record and the Prince record, but neither one of them work as an album. But I think there's plenty on both that, you know, hey, I'm glad to have these tracks out in the world. Well, we both thought uh, the Eilish and the Prince records had some great elements in them, but were flawed fundamentally. We want to know what the listeners think now. Leave us a message at soundopinions.org, and we may air it on the show. When we return, we'll look at the songs that move Latin music from a niche category to the center of the American music industry. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. And we are back. This week, we're looking at a phenomenon we haven't talked about for a couple of years on Sound Opinions, uh, the pop charts being dominated by Spanish-language hits. There have been these moments, Greg, once every three, four, five, six years, right, where suddenly everybody rediscovers the power of Latin music. I think the last huge one was the summer of 2017 when Despacito was everywhere, Mm. couldn't escape it, and it topped the Billboard charts for 16 weeks. Our guest this week is Layla Cobo, a VP at Billboard and the author of many books, her most recent being Decoding Despacito, an oral history of Latin music. Welcome, Layla, to Sound Opinions. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. I've read you guys for so long, and <laughs> well, uh, I feel like I'm in the hot seat today. <laughs> no, you're, I thought you were going to say, I've been waiting to argue with you guys for a long you time, so and now wrong, I finally get my chance. And everybody has their list. This is a wonderful way to tell... Uh, half a century of the story of Latin music, uh, you know, making an impact in this uh, often culturally unaware United States of America by virtue of the fact of these huge hit songs over half a century uh, making an impact on the charts. One of the recurring themes over and over every time Latin music has broken out is that all of the artists whose stories you tell, and it's the stories behind the songs, the stories of the songs, stories behind them, how they impact on the chart. They, every single one of these uh, artists was told one way or another, nobody wants you to sing in Spanish in America. <laughs> <laughs> and yet here are, it's 19 songs, right? Here are 19 songs, many others referenced, that have been huge hits in the United States. Uh, in Spanish entirely, or Spanish and English, but, like, you know, we're not supposed to ever listen to any other language here. But I gotta say, Jim, it used to be that way. I think for many years, the kind of conventional wisdom was, if you want to become a major superstar in the United States, you have to quote-unquote crossover, which has become like one of those terms that is now banned from existence. No one wants to cross over anymore. But in fact, it was kind of a requirement because otherwise you would not get played on the radio unless you were played on Latin radio stations. It was extremely difficult to get on television. Late Mm -hmm. night shows never had artists singing in Spanish, or maybe they did like once a year or once every two years. The Grammys never had Spanish language performances. So you had to like do this little song and dance and learn English. And then the world changed. And now everyone is far more open and they're streaming and you discover music in all these different ways. And, and in the book, the artists tell these stories because the book is an oral history. So they're mm-hmm. telling the stories. And, and you start from someone like Gloria Stefan in Congo. Don't you know? 
shake your body, baby, do that conga. I know you can't control yourself any longer. Come on, shake your body, baby, do that conga. I know you can't control yourself any longer. Which happens to be in English, but they were told, no, this this song has too many horns. It has too much percussion. That's not going to work on radio. And then you go all the way to someone like Jay Balvin, who from the onset said, you know what, I'm going to do this in Spanish and let's see what happens. You know, I'm yeah, going to insist. my song. I'm going to regret. Well, you start with Jose Feliciano. You know, your introduction mentions a few other artists. Perez Prado. Man. All yes. right. Love. Per- there's a whole book. There's there's a biopic. There should just be. <laughs> Perez Prado Day. Totally. But you start with a song we all know, and we know it so well that we forget that it's in Spanish. Um, tell the story of Jose Feliciano having this huge breakthrough hit with Feliz Navidad. I don't think Jose was thinking crossover or anything. He had just won the Grammy for Best New Artist, remember? And he had done it thanks to that album that had the the famous cover of Light My Fire. So he was recording in English, and then they asked him to do a Christmas album. And his producer, who's this wonderful guy called Rick Gerard, is the one who said, I, Jose, do something in Spanish. Rick doesn't speak Spanish, by the way. Mm. He's just like this really <laughs> cool guy. But he wanted yeah. Jose to record something in Spanish. And Jose was like playing around, comes up with this kind of super simple song. And he says, no one is ever going to like this. Like, this is ridiculous. I can't put it in this in a Christmas album, like with all these Christmas classics. And Rick was says, not no. even going to record it, right? <laughs> Wasn't even going to record it. And then Rick talks him into it. And then Jose says, you know what? Fine, I'll do it. But I have to put a couple of lines in English so that radio won't have an excuse not to play him. I want to wish you a And that's mm-hmm. how Feliz Navidad was born. Now, Leila, as a uh, editor of Billboard, tell us, right, you write a song like that that becomes a staple that's played 100 times a day at Christmas yeah. for three months, right? You're like made for life, aren't you? You are, and he says that. He says that. <laughs> when, <laughs> when I ask him, what do you think when you think back on Feliz Navidad, he's like, Oh, you know, I get royalties every year. Like, he's very, you know, this is the song that feeds him. Yeah, it's the yeah, song yeah. That, that, I, that has made his livelihood all these years. Well, that, that's a song that I would say that's the go-to. Like, if you're going to name one song and you have no knowledge at all of, you know, Spanish music or Latin music, you know, you, you're going to name that song. It's a great place to start the book. But I'm curious because that's where, where you're starting. But I'm thinking prior to that, you, you had songs like Guantanamara, you know, for example, that floated to the top. La Bamba. Course, you know, La Bamba by Richie Valens. There was other points you could have started at. I'm sure you considered all of the above. But, you know, I'm curious about your thinking about, okay, it's got to start here in 1970. One was very practical. I wanted them to be alive because I wanted the people who had created or recorded the songs or made them famous to be alive to tell me the process. My one exception Mm -hmm. was Selena, and in that case, I got her dad. If I hadn't gotten the dad, I don't think I would have included her. So that was one reason. And um, the other reason is I just couldn't go back so much because then I would never finish. That's the truth. (laughs) 
<laughs> and, and But La Bamba, I should have done La Bamba because La Bamba had that remake with Los Lobos. That's one of the songs that when I look back at the book, I'm like, eh, I should have put that one there. <laughs> Well, you know, I wrote a biography of Lester Banks, and Lester Banks said that all rock and roll comes from La Bamba. La Bamba leads to Louie Louie, which leads to No Fun by the Stooges, which leads to Blitzkrieg Bop. Same three chords every time, and you could take it right up to Smells Like Teen Spirit. Oh, my God, that's amazing. I love that. And, I, you know, and he grew up in El Cajon, right? Uh-huh. So San Diego, in the hills, not far from the border with Tijuana. And I, I think that... The reason I mentioned gratuitously Lester Bangs, but I think that there's something different about people in Southern California, Arizona, Texas, who the, the Latin culture is so much closer, yeah. right, that they never were off-put by songs in Spanish the way that perhaps Boston radio would be. I totally agree. And it's such a different culture, too, from the Latin culture in the East Coast, uh, from the more Caribbean culture you know the cuban yeah or puerto rico like but also you're right the mentality regarding language there's a generation in texas and california that doesn't speak it as much because it was not allowed in schools etc but it was still part of the ear you know it's still part of everything around you so even if you're not speaking it it's part of what you hear every day so it does affect the music yes and it's in the streets Yes. Well, uh, the book takes its title from the song Despacito. So we heard about Feliz Navidad. Tell us the story of this incredible hit by Luis Fonsi and uh, Daddy Yankee making his (laughs) cameo there. How did that song come together and how did it become so big? I love the story because I lived it as it was happening. I watched Mm -hmm. it unfold in the charts. And I don't think any of us in Billboard could imagine that this song was going to hit number one on the Hot 100. People forget that the Hot 100 is a measure of every song in the country, in every language. So for a song that's a Latin song to make it to number one is so hard. It happens so infrequently. And this song was primarily in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so Luis Fonsi is a balladeer. He's a beautiful, lovely guy with this beautiful voice, but he'd been kind of in a slump. And he writes this song with uh, Erica Ender, his writing partner. And it was originally like a pop song. And he takes it to his producers, these two Colombians. And they say, no, dude, this is a reggaeton. Let's put a reggaeton beat. And so they put a reggaeton beat. Like a year goes by and then they're like, you know what? We should have someone who does reggaeton come into the song as a guest artist and do like a little rap in the middle. And they asked Nicky Jam, another reggaeton artist who's completely bilingual. He really sings comfortably in both languages. Nicky records it. And after it's all done, he says, no, it can't come out because my album is coming out at the same time that you're planning the release of the single. And so at the last minute, they say, okay, let's ask Daddy Yankee. Loves the song, does it. They do the video, I think, and I mentioned the video because I think the video was very crucial to the success of the song. They film it in Puerto Rico, and this song just becomes a smash in Spanish, 
and it becomes a smash in Europe. Si te pido un beso, vendámelo. Yo sé que estás pensándolo. Llevo tiempo intentándolo. Mami, esto es dando y dándolo. Sabe que tu corazón conmigo te hace bam bam. Sabe que esa beba está buscando de mi bam bam. Me prueba de mi boca. And it just starts to do extremely well. And then they start thinking, okay, who can do a collab? Who can we bring to do something in English? And in the middle of this, Justin Bieber is in Bogota, Colombia, is in a nightclub, hears the song and says, you know, <laughs> this song is really cool. Calls his manager, Scooter Brown, and says, I just heard the song. And Scooter said, yeah, I'd heard about this song. Like, apparently they had approached him at some point. And Bieber says, I want to do it. I want to record this in Spanish. And the next day, he went to a studio in Bogota. They got him a diction coach. They flew down his producer, and the guy recorded the song. And by Friday, the song was up on Spotify. Is language ever a barrier for you in choosing what music to listen to, or is the feeling the most important thing? You can leave us a message on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, we've got more with Leila Cobo, including the impact of Selena and Rosalia. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. And we are back. We're charting the history of Latin music in the United States through select hit songs with author Leila Cobo. That's how she did it. That's how we're doing it. And there's one sound that's probably more responsible than any other for the current chart dominance of Latin music. Leila, I got to tell you, the reggaeton stuff, I mean, that is so infectious. I remember being in New York 20 years ago. Daddy Yankee was unknown to me at that time. And it was blasting from this record store I was in. And I'm thinking, what is this? This is so catchy. And it's like, a, you know, it's obviously in Spanish, but there was like this hip hop and dance hall stuff. And it was so, you know, dun, infectiously da, dun, great. Dun. And the whole store is dancing. Everybody's just like grooving to this <laughs> song. And later I find a Daddy Yankee, Gasolina comes out. You write about it in the book. I think he's a key in a lot of ways. The last 20 years kind of start with, with him. I mean, you can draw a line from J Balvin back to reggaeton kind of thing. Absolutely. Sort of young guy who was on the streets and understood what the streets wanted. And I just think it was a major moment for, for, for Latin music. In, in the I totally States. agree. And, and I think that you've described it so very well, because I always think that the success of reggaeton is that it was a beat that we, when I say we as Latins, didn't merely translate. Because when you do rock in Espanol, it's rock in Spanish. When you do pop, really it's pop in Spanish. Uh, rap is even rap in Spanish. But reggaeton was a very distinctive beat that I think wasn't commercialized before. And it's such a catchy beat. It's still there. The fact that it's been 20 plus years and people are still using the same beat says a lot. So I, I think reggaeton was transformative. I think it's music that travels extremely well because you don't have to understand what the heck they're saying. You can just dance mm. to it. You can do right. Zumba to it. You can do whatever to it and it, <laughs> it works. But I completely agree with you. I think uh, Latin music 
would not be where it is today if it were not for reggaeton. Whether you like reggaeton or not, it's the beat that internationalized the music. Mm -hmm. Well, and when you're talking about the beat, too often when the rock and espanol bands play rock, as you said, in Spanish, right? Or the uh, pop in Spanish, you know, they sacrifice the clave, right? I had to learn this growing up because my first band when I was a teenager, I was grew up in Jersey City, Union City was after Miami, the second greatest uh, source of the Cuban diaspora, right? Really? So all my friends and musicians were Cuban, right? And they were forever lecturing me on, you got to feel the clave, Jim. You know, you got to feel the clave, right? <laughs> With the rosewood sticks, you know? And it's like, one day, you know, I got a used set of timbales. One day I understood clave, right? It's there in reggaeton, and it's there in so much great Latin music, and yet too often Latin artists have sacrificed the very unique thing about that rhythm, that feel. Yes, but you could also argue that the clave is not a rhythm from Mexico, for example. Yeah, yeah. Although salsa is such a universal language, right? Yeah. Explain salsa and its roots, because that's a fascinating story I never stopped to think about until I was reading your book. Well, salsa is really born in New York City. Yeah. Because the music that was played in Cuba, uh, which is really kind of like the birthplace, wasn't quote-unquote salsa as we know it today. You know, it was Cuban son. And then it mixes in New York City with Puerto Rican beats and with uh, American beats as well and with mm -hmm. jazz. And then you get kind of this mix of sounds that we call salsa now, which is based on the clave, on the famous clave, which is... Uh, You know, it's a hard rhythm to understand, isn't it? Unless you like, it's like ingrained. It's done, done, done. It's like the syncopate. You got to learn mm -hmm. to feel it. You really do. There's several people that have said that salsa was really born in New York City, which I love, right, Jim? Because it shows that all yeah. music is is a mix of everything. I mean, we're not looking to be purists in music. I think we're looking to no. be impure. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's like the great African musicians you hear of Fela Kute listening to American rock and roll on, on well, Armed James, Forces James Radio, Brown you know? Stuff, yeah. It's like everything blends together. And, and so the, the homogenization of so much American pop radio, the closed ears to Latin music for so many years, uh, and you chronicle a revolution. That's over. It's done. That ain't happening no more. Well, I hope so. I mean... We talk about that a lot because, as you well know, Latin music has had cycles. Uh, back in, right. uh, in 1999, it was Ricky Martin and Shakira and Mark Anthony. And when Ricky came out with Living La Vida Loca, that was a revolution. And, uh, and Macarena. And, he, and Macarena. <laughs> <The Macarena. laughs> But uh, there was like a big group of artists that were doing all this music and then it kind of died well it didn't die it didn't die for us but i think the mainstream audiences just stopped listening so i do think now is a different time and people are more open to music from different places and in different mm. languages and you have so many discovery tools at your fingertips that you didn't have before so i hope it stays i, I think you're you're right and uh, you know you'd mentioned salsa And I think I was really glad that Mark Anthony was included in the book because he's just an incredible singer. Yeah. And I, I think I learned a lot going to study him. And I interviewed him a couple of times. He's incredibly gracious, incredibly knowledgeable. He's like almost like you were saying, he's very diverse in his taste in music. 
But the whole salsa thing was, that was an art form that was sort of passe. And then you're making the argument in the book that he sort of revived it, didn't he, in uh, 2013? I think he did. And it's interesting, Reg, you mentioned that because a couple months ago, we had an anniversary issue on Mark, on his 30 years in the business. Can you believe that? And among the people that I interviewed uh, to talk about him was Ruben Blades. And Ruben, um, I don't remember the exact words, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said one thing about Mark is Mark is not a pure salsa artist. You know, Mark came from from the dance scene in New York, and so he's not a pure quote-unquote salsa artist. And Ruben said he's like me. He's not a purist of the genre because he blends other things into it. And he also does acting, etc. But I thought, wow, how interesting that is, because I never thought about it that way. But it's true. Mm-hmm. They bring in a lot of influences to the music. And I think that's part of the appeal. That's why people find it exciting. And the fact that they go into acting in these different lanes also broadens the scope and it eventually brings people back to the music. Mark is just such a great singer. If anyone has not seen Mark Anthony live, you really have to because he's just a phenomenal performer. 100% agree. So this song was like some like pop, upbeat, like feel good song. And then Mark rearranged it for salsa and they did a version in Spanish of the lyrics. And mm-hmm. it really connected with people. It's a very anthemic song, but then the fact that they put um, the salsa beat to it and that clave, right, Jim? Because when you be, yeah. when you hear the intro to that song, that's what you hear. And underneath it, you have the clave. I think it's very irresistible. Selena. Selena. I think maybe only Aaliyah touches people's hearts in the same way. Where, where you just did it. You know, I said Selena, and you, you lean behind mm. Selena, right? What Eternal. Is Eternal, what is it about this woman's art that uh, so deeply touched people? Well, the fact that she dies at 23 and is left perpetually young and beautiful and vibrant because she was so vibrant on stage. But I've always thought that the great appeal of Selena is that she was Mexican-American And at the time, all her pop stars, they were from somewhere else. They weren't from the States. She was from here, Mm -hmm. you know. She was born and raised in Texas. And I think she resonated very, very, very deeply with all this population, especially of girls who didn't have anybody like that. I mean, there really was not a pop star that looked like her, that spoke like her, that could speak both languages. I mean, she didn't exist, or at least not at that level of musicianship or and commercial success. So she as a person, I think, made people think, this is possible. You know, I see myself there. And I think that is part of her appeal. Doesn't hurt that she was a great singer, you know. Yeah. These are all really good artists. <laughs> How much control did she have uh, of the material she chose to record? 
her dad very closely, you know, was the shepherd of her career. Mm-hmm. But I do think she had quite a bit of autonomy in the music, mm-hmm. at least in the in in her in her latest albums. And uh, Amor Prohibido, according to her dad, is inspired by the story of his own grandmother and this forbidden love. But the song was written by her brother, by A.B. Quintanilla with Pira Sudillo. And she was very close to A.B. And uh, he wrote a lot. He wrote, I think, most of her songs with Pete. And I do think Selena had a lot of say over what she performed and how she performed it. Definitely everything she wore, the way she acted, um, her clothing, her dancing, that was all her. She didn't have like yeah. a professional choreographer or a professional stylist. Hmm. That wasn't back then. You yeah. didn't, or maybe you did, but she didn't. <laughs> well, certainly the, the image you got on stage was of a young woman in control. So it was a family affair. No market research team behind her. <laughs> no, no. Isn't that amazing? Like yeah. nothing, yeah. nothing. Just like a lot of ten uh, thousand hours in there. Yeah, and they they would go on their little van and go drive all through Texas and play yeah. in all these dives and joints and. And when you do that, you become a great performer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you learn how to read a room for sure. Yeah. You, you close the book with uh, Rosalia. Uh, yes. Who is, who, that's another incredible artist. I saw her live like a couple of years ago, back when we could go see shows. Yeah, remember that? Greg, what did you think of her live show? She was incredible. I thought she was great. And I, yeah. she won over an audience at Lollapalooza. I think it was there kind of more on, on uh, you know, like curiosity. Like, I've heard a lot about this artist, but I really don't know. Because, you know, American pop stations don't really play Rosalia yet. No. You know, they're, getting, they're getting there. My sense of her is that she is a very... You talk about Selena kind of finding out who she was and presenting exactly what she wanted to in, in her last record. Rosalia strikes me as very self-possessed. Yes. No one's going to tell this lady what to do. And I think that's a quality that really resonates. Uh, you know, with, people can see that. You know, there's conviction there. This is not an artifact. This is not no. somebody manufactured this person. And so difficult to find that, right? Because her music is not easy. It's uh, not immediately commercial. It's not the kind of thing you can you hear one time and then you start humming it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like a sum of all these parts. It's complicated. And yet she's such a convincing performer. I find her on... I, I find her on stage absolutely riveting it like she's the kind of artist that you just like your your jaw drops she's phenomenal on stage there's a lot of conviction there i think that's what it comes across it's like you maybe don't even understand what she's saying but you can tell that she you know there's a lot of intensity behind it so i I just found it fascinating what why did you choose to end the book there do you feel like she's the future like the kind of she's the she's the next stepping stone kind of for the for the progression of this of this music well, my unromantic answer again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so Always practical. blame the editor. This is what all writers do, yeah. <laughs> I had, the, the truth is I had ended the book with Balvin's Mi Gente because I thought, okay, I have Despacito. Then the very quick follow-up to Despacito was Mi Gente, which was 
a smash and I thought it was a great way to end the book with Balvin who like is such a I'm singing in Spanish and I'm going to become a global star in Spanish and right, and right. then that's a song where Beyonce eventually landed Si Balvin Willy William Beyonce Freeze Los DJ no miente le gusta mi gente y eso se fue muy No les bajamos mas nunca paramos es otro palo y plano Y donde está mi gente Me fue a buscar la tete So I thought it was a great way to end the book. And then I did get a call from my editor and he said, what about adding Rosalia? And at that point, I had seen her perform in Spain. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, let's add Rosalia. She didn't have a humongous smash hit at that point, but I thought this girl is going to be so big And this book is going to come out in two years. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And let's put Rosalia. And I'm very glad I did because the book is also all about songs that break the mold. Songs that at the time that they came out, there was nothing like them. Like that, which is what has made them such long lasting hits. And Rosalia, I think, fit there perfectly. I mean, she is someone who was doing something no one else was doing. And uh, and you are right in that it's a beautiful way to end the book because she's such an exquisite musician um, that I love ending the book on a very high note artistically. And I think mm-hmm. she very much elevates everything there and you kind of, yeah, you, you, you finish reading it with hope in your heart. It's going to be a great test for the market that we are seeing exploding. $500 million dollars in streaming in 2019 from Latin music, right? Can you imagine? That's a lot of money. Is Rosalia going to be able to translate that artistry into something that translates to a, the, the big North American market, you know, beyond her core following of, you know, Spanish-speaking listeners? Uh, you know, is she the one? Is she the one that does that? You know, I don't know. It, but, you know, the artistry is definitely there, like you said. And along the way, I think you've seen artists have to make sort of little compromises in order to reach that audience, you know, that bigger audience. Yeah. Right? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's guys who have just stuck their way. But I don't see her making too many compromises is what I'm saying, <laughs> you know? I don't see her making too many. Um, but she's been very strategic about her recent collaborations. She had the one with Bad Bunny. Then she had that collab with The Weeknd. So I think she's been very strategic about who she collaborates with. But I still find that her music is very her. It's not commercial music in the traditional sense of the word right. at all. So I'm very eager to see her tour North America. Because I think that that's going to be a big test. Mm-hmm. Leila, you, you made the point uh, with Despacito, and, and it comes up in several cases in the book, that a, a Spanish-language song uh, first connects in Europe before it connects in North America, in the United States. Um, which is, you know, reminds me of how uh, those those British artists had to record Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf in order for America to fall in love with the music that came from here yeah. when there was a color boundary, right? We are in this time where 
Puerto Rico, you know, an island that is part of the United States, uh, suffers this devastating hurricane and we throw paper towels at them. We're at a time when we have built a wall or would, wanted to build a wall across our southern border. It, you know, it, these are such blinded times in too many parts of this country to the other half of the continent we share with people. Is music the tool? So I'm asking not the billboard editor who follows the business. I'm asking the novelist in you, the uh, musician yourself, right? The romantic in you. Is the music going to be the tool that breaks down these boundaries that have artificially been created? I think music is a great tool. I, I used to think film was the tool. And now mm. I, I think that it's music because music just, it's more porous, no? It's, it's this, this thing that goes out and anybody can grab it and kind of adopt it and interpret it and sing it and dance it any way they want. I mean, it's, it's like water. It's, it's just there. I mean, it's so cliche to say music has no borders, but music really, truly has no borders. And streaming really made that uh, very visible. And Jim, about a year ago, I wrote, I, I wrote something about like my perpetual topic, which is why is Spanish language music not playing more, et cetera, et cetera. And someone wrote me a letter and they said, you forget that in the 50s, Perez Prado was number one on the charts. Yeah. yeah. You're Perez Prado. And I thought, yeah, honestly, I forget that. And Perez Prado was number one on the charts. And everybody was dancing mambo and cha-cha-cha and having a grand old time. And nobody was thinking, oh, this Paris Prado guy is not American. He's like a Cuban and he lives in Mexico. No one was saying that. Everyone yeah. was saying, wow, this music is great. Let's go dance. So mm -hmm. I, I hope that all these years later, there's a little bit that I hope that that's coming back and that it's not about where you come from or who you are, but just... Is the music great? Does it make me want to move? Does it touch me? Does it excite me? And if it does, then let's go. It doesn't matter. We have been talking to Leila Koba, who is the uh, VP of Latin Music at Billboard, as well as the author of Decoding Despacito, an oral history of Latin music. Leila, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. This was a lot of fun. I hope next time we can do it over gin and tonics. Thank you, Leila. <laughs> Thank you. What's your favorite song sung in Spanish? Is there a transformative Latin artist we've missed? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, or start a conversation on our Facebook group. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we have a classic album dissection of one of Yes's best yet most underrated albums, Going for the One. And this week on our bonus podcast, we take another trip to the desert island to play a song we can't live without. Love those bonus podcast, Greg, and uh, love revisiting that Yes album. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our intern Sol Delgadillo, and our social media consultant Katie Cott. We have had such great response to our Sound Opinions listener survey. We're keeping it open for a while longer. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>